Anything else that you, any questions you have of us or any lasting tips or tricks that you want to share? I think that whether you work for a school that has a robust instructional design team or you're a one-man shop, I think trying to plug in. So if you don't have this group of amazing people around the table that I'm sitting at, you still have this group of amazing people because they're right here on the podcast. I think recognizing that you're not alone is really important. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In this summer bonus episode, we are going to talk with our special guest, Heidi Sanborn, from Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. She's a clinical assistant professor and associate director for both the RN to BSN, Registered Nurse to Bachelor of Science in Nursing program, and CEP, Concurrent Enrollment Program. Although both Jeanette and Steven serve as adjunct faculty at ASU in addition to their primary roles in academic innovation, and Erin and I both have teaching experience, Heidi will provide us some insight and expand our views with a health profession faculty perspective on faculty development. For this podcast, I'm going to be using the term and referring to faculty development as a systematic effort to improve on the teaching and learning process, rather than the similar term of professional development, which can indicate and embed the development of personal professional skills, rather than remaining specific to only teaching and learning development. According to the article, Faculty Development in the United States, A Brief History, authored by Karen G. Lewis for the International Journal of Academic Development. The original term of faculty development referred to the development of expertise in one's subject and field. This definition made the assumption that as long as one is an expert in the subject matter itself, one should also be able to teach it. The development process consisted of sabbatical leave to attend conferences, conduct research, complete advanced degrees, and participate in professional meetings. After increasing criticism was raised over unnecessary courses and mediocre instruction in the 70s and 80s, and the need to avoid staff turnover, faculty and universities began developing programs that emphasized the development of instructional development like behavioral objectives, learning experience design, more efficient instructional tools, and evaluations. Quality of instruction was coming to the forefront of higher education. Today, there are a variety of approaches to providing faculty development, especially with the growth of accessibility options, as we talked about in our Season 1 podcast, Episode 8, Professional Development for Busy Faculty. Types of faculty development are extending from face-to-face centered approaches to mobile access, like online workshops and the example in which you are listening to today, Audio Access, the podcast. More and more programs are also now emphasizing the need for learning how to integrate technology into their teaching repertoires. Using resources outside the university proves to be beneficial for individual faculty. For example, commercial resources that provide paid subscriptions to use their services along with open educational resources like those mentioned in Season 1, Podcast Episode 4, Moving Beyond the Textbook for Learning Materials, that also provides support for faculty development. But are those organizations enough? How important is it for universities and colleges to have their own specific programs? Should we only be looking to outside resources? My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from the Academic Innovation Team at Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. With me today are... Aaron Kraft. Stephen Crawford. Jeanette Senecal. Heidi Sanborn. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we do have a special guest, Heidi Sanborn. Um, Heidi, can you give us some background information on you? 
Sure. I ha- <laughs> give me give me everything. <laughs> Who am I? So I have been teaching now for five years, and I say teaching because it started in the clinical environment, and we're not called faculty there. But I worked in an ICU setting, critical care, and trained nurses, and I did that before I made the switch to academia. And since making that switch, I've also worked in the associate degree nursing program, and then here at ASU in the baccalaureate nursing program in the online. RN to BSN and CEP program, which you just mentioned. So um, your teaching experience or your experience here at ASU has all been online. Have you done any face-to-face instruction here at this university? Not here at ASU. When I was in the associate program, everything was face-to-face and obviously in the clinical setting face-to-face as well. So what was that transition like going from the face-to-face setting as an instructor over to an all-online Well, honestly, that's a bigger question because the transition to a teaching role from a clinical expert role in and of itself is a very big change. And I think it's something that faculty and health profession programs, um, you mentioned that in your um, last podcast about how in health professions, our career is very disjointed. We have to spend a lot of time in the clinical environment becoming experts at what we do and understanding what that clinical role is. Once you become an expert, you then step into a teaching role, and in a lot of ways, you're brand new, and you really don't know anything about how to teach. You just know how to do. So each time I've changed roles, whether it's from face-to-face to online or from clinical to the academic setting or from bedside to a teaching setting, all of those have been processes where I have to go from expert back down to novice each single time. There's a different skill set. Um, you can certainly talk about the skill set for teaching, but there's also a skill set for teaching online, and mm-hmm. it's a very big transition. So what have been the ways that you've gained development in getting those skills for teaching and then for the online environment? So uh, a lot of it is trial by fire at the beginning because I, I think most of us who go into the teaching role don't quite understand that teaching in and of itself is an expertise and it's a set of skills that you may or may not possess inherently. I think it's after the first year or two when you get over your fear of having to stand in front of a classroom with 100 people looking at you to be the expert on the content. Once you get past that fear, all of a sudden you start to recognize, huh, well, there were times when I really reached out to the audience and made that connection, and I can see that learning happened, and there were times that it just didn't happen. And that's when you start to seek out all kinds of resources. I know you were talking in a previous episode about how to make connections, and you were talking about faculty presence in the classroom, but it, but it really speaks to onboarding new faculty, not as students, but as new faculty. And so there's a lot of different resources. For one, you mentioned mentoring. That's a really big piece is reaching out to people who are experienced faculty, maybe one person for one set of skills, a different person for a different set of skills. So you draw from your mentors, the people you identify as experts in the faculty field. But there's also a lot of on-demand resources. You know, we've got one of them right here with a podcast. There are discipline-specific bulletin boards um, where you can post conversations and share knowledge back and forth. There's professional conferences. There's YouTube. Of course, somebody mentioned just Google it. That's certainly an option as well. So the more you are willing to spread your wings and look at a lot of different sources of information, I think that's when the real growth happens. It's limitless, and it's only limited by how willing you are to go out and search for that kind of development. Do you feel that the resources have expanded over the years from the time that you first began as an instructor to now? I know a lot of the things that you touched on right now sounded more mobile 
accessible Mm -hmm. versus more face-to-face or, you know, being present at, let's say, a conference. Yeah, that's changed a lot. Um, Even in the short period of time that I've been a faculty member at five years of experience, I'm still pretty, quote unquote, young as a faculty. And I've seen a change in that period of time. There's a lot more acceptance of the idea that faculty are adult learners, and we perhaps need to treat them like adult learners, which means give them the material, allow them to digest the material on their own time, and in a reflective place where they connect it to their own place of work or experience. So yes, I've seen a growing focus on some of those on-demand type technologies that you can use. I can say from my perspective, being involved in professional organizations, that they're all looking to reach out and they're recognizing that connecting with their membership has to be done in this on-demand style. So there's lots of webinars and podcasts and bulletin board discussions All of those things are fairly new, and now they're commonplace in most organizations. Heidi, how do you uh, sort through those various resources? How how, How do you discover them? How do you decide which one's worth your priority? And how do you prioritize which ones to listen to? And how do you find the time to do it as well? Yeah, I know you all were talking in an earlier episode about email bloat. Um, That certainly resonated with me. I think it resonates with anybody in a professional role at this point. And it's very hard to stay on top and, and filter through. And I think it takes time. One of them is understanding I subscribe to a lot, but I know that I can't handle the email. So what I do is make sure when I subscribe to something, anything, that I make my notification settings work for me. Some, I know that if I get an email once a month and I get an update on what's been happening, that's enough. There are other, other organizations that I know as I get more information, these people are really sharing some valuable knowledge that I want to know about. Those I set my notifications for daily. So I try to filter over time. If something is not as useful as I thought it would, I have to be ruthless about cutting it. This is not going to be the resource for me or maybe doing that once a month notification. Some of it I think is trial and error. Some sources are great. Some look great on paper and turn out not to be so great in practice. So finding what works and being ruthless about cutting the ones that don't, I think is the key to for me, keeping my email in check. So you mentioned that you have taught both face-to-face and online. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what your impressions are. Do you prefer one over the other? I like face-to-face because I'm a people person, and I really enjoy getting that feedback from people. You can see in their eyes that you're connecting with them. You can read body language. You can see when you're not connecting with them. And in some ways, that makes life really easy. But I find that a lot of those skills translate to online, you just have to do it differently. So I really enjoy the flexibility for my lifestyle Mm -hmm. online. I can fit more things in. Does that mean that I'm working Monday through Friday, nine to five? Most certainly not. You know, teaching online has become a 24-7 job. Not that I'm working excessive hours, but they're alternative hours. And I like that for my lifestyle at the moment. But I find that lack of people connection, I was afraid that would be there. But in reality, I really do connect with my students in an online environment um, more than I expected that I would. I try very hard to add personality to who I am. So I will use video recordings rather than a podcast or an email so that they can see my face, they can see my body language. I make sure when I talk to them, I smile so that they can see that I'm not very intimidating. Give so it I, that human touch. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and it, it's okay. You can reach out to me. I'm not a mean person. And I think sometimes students have this image of what faculty are. And I think when you can make it that personal connection, 
whether you're face-to-face or online, I think it really makes their learning experience so much better. So mm-hmm. I like both. They're just very, very different. Sure. You know, you're talking about, you know, you use video to reach out to the students and provide that uh, connection. How did you learn to, to use those tools? Was there, how did you come about, A, how did you discover the tool and how you could use it? And B, how did you learn to use it? I think a little bit of both. First is that um, ASU has been wonderful about providing, you know, the instructional design support, technology support, where if I have a question or I see something or I take a faculty development course, I can see all of the different ways that this technology is being used. So that's one thing. The other part of it is just an inquisitive nature that I have. I'm, I'm not intimidated by technology and I'm not intimidated by failure. I think that certainly the first few times you record a video, or doing a podcast, you stumble over words, or you say something funny and you laugh at a wrong point in time. It's okay. Again, going back to that personal connection, that makes me human to the students. So I've learned to accept that if I'm going to give a little four-minute lecture to my students and I flub a couple lines, I just keep going at this point. I'll laugh at myself. I'll make a joke. And I think that helps. So Part of it is just going out and trying, okay, well, I saw this on a newscast or I heard about it in a podcast. I'm going to go research it and try it. Worst case happens is you can't figure it out and you've got to ask for help. But there's a lot out there if you're willing to try and and to not get too caught up in being perfect. I think there's lots of opportunity, but you have to be inquisitive about it. So with you having an inquisitive nature, how do you encourage other faculty who might not necessarily have that and might be a little more afraid of using some of those tools? I think that's a really good question. I I think, you know, certainly we know that there's a generational divide in terms of how people feel about technology and their level of comfort. We also struggle with privacy and online, and that's a, a whole different ball of wax where some people feel very uncomfortable being on public media like YouTube, and you have to honor that. So that being said, I think part of it is a culture, and I happen to work in an environment with other faculty who also feel very strongly about the online culture, and most are also very inquisitive. So by default, I find that I absorb things from them. If I try something new, I share it with them, and they're willing to jump in and try it as well. So I think if you're working in a team that may not be as comfortable, maybe your job is going to need to be the champion and the cheerleader on that. So go out, try it. I find that not necessarily tooting my own horn, but sharing, hey, look what I did. I got this feedback from a student who commented about my videos. Um, Here's a couple videos that I recorded. If you want me to help you, I'd be happy to show you how to do it. Eventually, you know, as we know with innovation, You've got your early adopters, um, and then you've got your laggards. Um, And and that's true for any type of technology or other innovative product where we all feel uncomfortable with it. So if you're an early adopter, part of your responsibility is to share what you've done and make it seem a little bit less intimidating for those that you work with. I think that culture of curiosity and growth is really important across faculty, and it helps to build that implicit community of practice even though you might not necessarily be meeting at 12 o'clock every Monday or something with an explicit purpose to do so and share development, it helps build it into the fabric of your team. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of meetings, certainly when when we think online faculty, I, I have a lot of friends from the clinical environment and 
they constantly reach out, hey, you know, you must love your job. You get to teach from the beach. Isn't that so great? And I said, well, I don't know about you, but I have an office downtown, and I show up to my office every week. But we do, as a team, make a point to meet, usually about once a month. Sometimes it's by phone call or uh, Google Hangout if it's a smaller group or Adobe Connect. But most of the time, we really do make an effort, even with our part-time faculty, to meet face-to-face every once in a while. And I, I think that's an important part of building that. That's when all of those side conversations happen. Hey, guess what I tried? And it, it worked really great. I'd love to show you what I did. That's when all of that diffusion happens, I think. Absolutely. There's quite a bit of literature emerging on distributed teams and how that regular meeting, even if it's online or phone or whatever, but it, it really is very important to the success and the culture of the team. Yeah, we see it with our group, no question. Teach from the beach. Right? I love that phrase. <laughs> I want that job. <laughs> yeah, seriously. What beach has that good of Wi-Fi? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it's funny you mentioned beach. Um, a couple of days ago, one of our followers on Twitter was asking us, what approaches do we take to engage faculty with professional development over the summer? And I'm kind of curious, you're a 12-month faculty member. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about a lot of the times those faculty members who are 12 or 10-month faculty members, so they're not often on contract during the right. summer. How are some good ways you think to reach them and, and what do you think would what do you th- what do you think are some possibilities out there? Well, I think that's when you have to go alternative. And and I will make a comment that I, I do feel very strongly that if you are ours are nine months, so if you're a nine-month faculty and you're not being paid to work in the summer, I feel really strongly about respecting that. And that's your time, and you need to regenerate and be with your family. And if this is what is working for your lifestyle, I need to honor that. So I actually, in the summer, try very hard not to reach out to faculty as much. However, that being said, most of my faculty do pick up extra courses and teach in the summer. So we're all teaching right now, and there's lots of communication back and forth. But it's certainly asynchronous. We don't hold meetings in the summer. We don't expect people to be present. But we have lots of phone calls, emails, sharing stuff. If I get an email on some great learning tool, I'll go ahead and forward it on to my faculty. And it's up to them. If they want to check their email during the summer, great. If they don't, they can see it when they come back in August. But for me, that summer, that's a little bit sacred. And and time off, I think, is, is something we have to respect. So we do shift to an asynchronous environment in the summer. Yeah, and kind of to close the loop on that question, so my response to uh, to this individual was that, you know, we do a lot of different things at different times. And and because of the, the lack of a contract for some of our faculty, you know, this podcast is one of the ways that we reach out. If they're listening during the summer, then they can listen to it um, at their leisure. If not, then they can pick it up uh, when they start back in the uh, in the fall. Same thing with webinars, you know, with recorded webinars. And his response was, um, releasing a suite of, uh, of on-demand trainings. Maybe our marketing should be PD at the beach. So uh. closing the loop. Uh, perfect. <laughs> Um, Earlier, before our podcast, we were talking a little bit about molds and one-size-fits-all models. Being specific to nursing, what are some needs that nursing-specific programs have that you wouldn't necessarily find in other more general programs? Well, this may not be just nursing, but certainly for health profession programs. um, But I know it's certainly true for nursing is that 
like I mentioned before, there's that, that culture shock of going from being a clinical expert to then a faculty expert. They're two very different roles. That being said, you can't be an expert faculty in nursing without understanding that clinical piece. So part of it is allowing faculty that time to maintain clinical competence. Our courses focus on different clinical areas, so we make a point to support our faculty when they want to attend a conference or pick up hours at the bedside or continue in some sort of a clinical capacity that competence and that relevance not only is important for their own development, but it's really important for the students to see that the faculty still have clinical relevance in some way, shape, or form. That doesn't mean that faculty are relegated to constantly having to work two jobs for the rest of their career, but there are ways to maintain clinical competence. And that's something that's very specific, I think, to health professions. So being cognizant of, of that need is one of them. That being said, I think that impacts our faculty model compared to some other programs where there's less of a focus on the true tenure track position versus a clinical track position. Here at ASU, that's a very big distinction, and clinical track positions imply that I am taking some of my workload to maintain clinical competence in some way, shape, or form. And that's unique, I think, certainly to nursing, but I think some of the other health profession programs may have a similar mix going on there. So that's one piece. So when you were starting out as a new faculty member and making that transition from clinical expert to becoming a faculty expert, what do you wish you would have had in the, in the form of faculty and professional development? And how do you wish that was delivered to you? I mean, looking back, what do you wish you, what did you, what did you want to know and what do you, how do you wish you would have learned it? Yeah, I, th I forget what episode it was, but you were talking about new faculty. I think, Celia, that was your comment that you don't know what you don't know. And certainly, I didn't. I had no clue what the role was going to be. I didn't really understand what my responsibilities were. I didn't know the distinction between teaching and clinical expertise. So I think in the beginning, there should be an emphasis on pushing out to those new faculty. I think that's our responsibility as experienced faculty is to reach out to them because they don't know enough to reach out to us and provide that sort of one-to-one -one mentorship, that face-to-face -face connection, even if it's, hey, let's go grab lunch and you can have a shoulder to cry on or share your exciting moments. Sometimes it's just that personal connection, knowing that you've got somebody you can turn to if you really get stuck. So for me, that was the first piece I wish had happened because I really was thrown into the deep end and I didn't understand how deep the deep end actually was. So that was hard for me because I didn't know who to reach out to. So I, I think to start, I think we need to do a better job of that mentorship piece, that face-to-face. -face. From there, there's lots of resources out there, but I think one of the problems we get into, at least from what I've seen, is that you kind of throw everything at them all at once. And certainly for us, we hire our faculty. Their first day of accountability is a week before classes start. That's not a whole lot of time to onboard and orient. And if I throw them eight different emails with webinars and podcasts and a conference that they should attend, it's not going to happen. And not only that, if they're not experienced and they do attend something, they don't necessarily absorb it because they don't really understand what the content even means. Sometimes it's new language to them. So I think spacing out, I, ideally, I see that mentorship really going over a year at the very least. And I think certainly there's a lot of evidence showing it should go far beyond that. But for that first year, it starts with the personal connection. And then maybe once a month, 
okay, here's a webinar I want you to attend. Here's a podcast I want you to subscribe to and listen to it on your commute into work. Here's an organization I want you to join. And then at six months, my expectation is that you're going to take this week-long course and that you're going to uh, attend this other webinar and have it marched out for them so that they have an orientation plan. And then you're there to provide that mentorship in between to find out where they're getting stuck, how they're, uh, you know, how they're performing, just that check-in piece. So I, phasing it over a year, I think, is a really great idea rather than having them try to drink from a fire hose. I think that's great for new faculty members. But what about the faculty who have been here a while? How should the university help support them in keeping them up to date with the latest resources or the latest um, even methodologies? Yeah, that's that's a good question, because I think that's probably the forgotten part of mentorship and faculty development. Um, you assume if you've been in a faculty role for 15 years, you know what you're doing. But the reality is even online teaching, even face-to-face hybrid courses, they're very different than they used to be, um, and it's an evolving skill. I think, again, you have to be careful of trying to expect people to drink from a fire hose, and that, that email bloat that we talked about I can't just send a million emails to people and expect them, okay, I'm going to register for this class and that looks perfect. I'll do this because they won't. We all get overloaded. But I think when you tap into that group culture of the faculty team, I think sometimes what we'll try to do is have the whole team attend something together. Hey, we're going to cancel our meeting this week and instead we're going to attend this faculty development course. There are courses provided for training for faculty that I will track what faculty have attended it. And so they feel like they're held accountable that within the first um, six months of teaching this course, I'm going to expect that you're going to take this class. And this is going to be written into your faculty development plan that's part of your annual review. So when they go through at the end of the year and they look at their goals, well, did I attend that class? Did I go to the three webinars I identified that I thought would be useful? That's a way of really holding, that's a very concrete way of holding them accountable for it. And then the last piece, again, is that that culture, if, if you foster a culture in your own team of being open to new ideas and trying things and, you know, taking a handful of spaghetti and throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks and accepting the failure when it happens, I think that makes an environment a lot less intimidating for experienced faculty. I mean, let's face it, you don't want to go into a role that you're the most senior person in terms of years of service and admit well, I don't really know how to do that. So I think if you create an environment that's not punitive, that's open, and again, going back to that inquisitive word, I think that really creates a place, a safe place, that psychological safety where they can try something and they can fail and that's okay. From the leadership perspective, can you talk a little bit about the other side there on the mentors? How can we incentivize people, faculty, to be good mentors and to deal with the wicked problem of limited institutional resources? We can't always give course release time or, or whatever? How can we make it more feasible for people to be mentors? Hmm. Why don't you ask me a more difficult question? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's a hard question. And, and honestly, you hit at the nugget of why I think a lot of people don't. Nobody wants to volunteer for a heavier workload. But I think that what you need to push is the understanding that the more you mentor your faculty and the higher they perform, the easier your job becomes. So if I'm paired with somebody and I mentor them to do something beautifully, guess what? I now have somebody I can delegate to. 
Or if something comes up, I can say, you know what, I don't have the time for this, but this would be an excellent learning opportunity for you. I'd like you to try it. I'm here in the background, but I'm going to let you try it. So I think if you can message it from the perspective of you're training the people who are going to be your backup, I think sometimes that helps versus this is something you're going to have to do because we have new faculty and you're the oldest person on staff, old, again in quotes. But I think when you're voluntold to do something, that never feels good. But when you message it from a, a standpoint of this is going to help you too, I think sometimes the buy-in is a little bit better. I, you know, it's, that's a hard question. That's a great response. You know, when I think back to some of the more active faculty mentors we've had in the college, they tend to be leaders of some sort, whether they're formal program directors or faculty governance leaders, faculty assembly, that, you know, often it seems that those who really relish and love mentoring for the sake of mentoring end up often being leaders in the college of some, of some form. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I certainly um, myself going through a, a doctoral program that's focused on innovation leadership and going to leadership seminars and being a new leader myself in terms of a formal title, I, I think that's, that's something I take for granted that we all understand. And I, and I believe very strongly that we are all leaders, whether you have a title to go with it or not. But I think you're right that that's an understanding that some people just inherently get, and other people maybe don't understand the influence that they might have, whether they have a leadership title or not. I think it comes from the the idea that we're stronger when we work together versus I think some people are that workhorse mentality where I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone and I've got a to-do list and darn it, I'm going to check off that whole to-do list by the end of the day today so I can take the weekend off. And they look at things like faculty mentorship and reaching out to other people and even delegation as just one more task to do. And they don't necessarily see the flip side of that. Whereas if you grow a strong team, sure, you might work harder in the beginning as you're getting them up and running. But once you get them grown and in place, it just works so much easier and it makes your life easier as well. But I think it takes watching maybe somebody else do that. And I think that's all of our responsibility. Those of us who value that concept is to show others how it might work. What has been your favorite or best resource as one, a faculty member, and then as two, a leader? Well, to start with the faculty piece, certainly I look to my professional organizations. I like knowing what's on the horizon. I like understanding what the issues are that the industry is grappling with. I'm not working at the bedside anymore, but I want to understand what my students who I am teaching are, are being prepared to go out and handle. So professional organizations, whether that means Again, I really like the bulletin board discussions. I love podcasts because I have a really long commute. What else am I going to do for an hour each way? <laughs> so I will listen to podcasts. I love videos where I can get a quick little blip on something. I know, Stephen, you're a fan of Twitter. Uh, Twitter, for me, is the fire hose. I just can't find myself to drink. Um, you have to be selective. Yeah, you do have to be very selective. But I, I think from a faculty perspective, I'm not sure that the answer would be much different quite honestly. I think there are so many resources out there. It takes time to find the ones that work for you and that have the perspective that's going to speak to the needs that you have. Each one of us has different development needs and each one of us has strengths and weaknesses that don't necessarily align with everybody else. But taking the time to customize your newsfeed, if you will, and what sources of data you use, no matter what role you're in, 
those resources are out there, and, and each one might fit a different need. Did that answer it? I don't remember what you asked me, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. No. <laughs> blah, Nobody blah, blah, to me. blah. It's okay. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else that you, any questions you have of us or any lasting tips or tricks that you want to share? Well, I think, first of all, I want to thank all of you guys. I don't think sometimes you understand what a resource you provide for faculty and for me personally. For me, I love being able to bounce ideas or, hey, I, I read this idea about posting a YouTube video. What do you think? And being able to have a team of experts that you can go to to ask can validate a great idea or can help you weed out, yeah, that might not be the best use of your time. So having that that group of people that I can reach out to is really helpful. So I, I want to take some time to thank all of you for that. I think that whether you work for a school that has a robust instructional design team or you're a one-man shop, I think the time that you all are taking to develop this podcast. You mentioned a whole slew of podcasts in one of your other episodes. I think that I think it was episode eight, five, eight, I think. Eight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's worth going back to that episode and writing down some of those names. There are podcasts that focus on faculty development. There are some that focus on that clinical piece of it. I think trying to plug in so if you don't have this group of amazing people around the table that I'm sitting at, you still have this group of amazing people because they're right here on the podcast. I think recognizing that you're not alone is really important. And I, I think most of us are surprised when you reach out and ask for help and somebody says, sure, I'd love to help you. Whereas if we sit in our office and think, gosh, I don't know how to do this. This is so hard. Why are they expecting me to take on this skill? I don't have any resources. You're not going to get any help that way. But I think as you start reaching out and actively making those connections, you'll find there's a lot of help out there. Well, that was a great lead-in to my closing. No one else has anything. So as we come to the end of our summer bonus podcasts and you begin to immerse yourself into your fall course development, we challenge you to think about how you are developing your teaching and learning effectiveness, what resources you are taking advantage of, and we thank you for allowing our podcast to be part of that. Drop us a note and let us know what topics you think we should add to our list for the upcoming fall semester. I'd also like to give a very special thank you to our guest, Heidi Sanborn. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and summer to talk faculty development with Jeanette Senecal, Stephen Crawford, Aaron Kraft, and myself, Celia Kutwaitiwa. I'd like to extend appreciation to our amazing producer, Ricardo Leon, the one who allows us to be heard. H-E-R-D, heard. <laughs> you can reach us on twitter at ibd underscore podcast that is ibd as an instruction by design underscore podcast or you can email us at instruction by design at asu.edu to find previous episodes please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash ibd underscore podcast this podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Although both Jeanette and Steven serve as adjunct funculty. Funculty. <laughs> we got an adjunct. All aboard the mothership. <laughs> We're fun. That's my new title, I yeah. think. <laughs> okay. Get her done.